We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Kyo Lagas Coral on Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. La Niklas O'Brenon. Walter Villiga, Story, Kyologos Kora, Radio Fubble Car Kilkenny, got a hook to hook print shock to FM. It's Federation, Lesh and Lor Shoher and Saharner and Nate Clog, Agasarisha and Loner and Nate Clog. Well, our dues are Majin, Beg Me Hollow Dream and the Ekind, Fishana Dunavan, Scholar Gelga O Kilkenny. Cafe Taration A, Beg Me Kind, let Joanna read, Stura Horn and Glory Dona Shunta, Dona Griot, Karen Tol Goal. You're very welcome to another day's uh, broadcasting on Community Radio Kilkenny City and you're very welcome to Keologos Cora. We're here with you every Saturday morning at 9 o'clock with Geologos Cora on again at Monday at repeat of the programme. Well, this morning, Michal Ardimide, he talks to us about Sean O'Donovan. Sean O'Donovan, an Irish language scholar from Kilkenny. Around 20 past 9 this morning, my guest will be Joanna Reid, the Goal Director of International Programmes. Goal is the International Humanitarian Response Agency, which was established in Ireland over 40 years ago. And I'll be chatting to Joanne about their work throughout the world. Around 9.40, I'll be joined by Gavin Riley, the Virgin Media News political correspondent, to chat about the key political issues of the week. And my friend, there's certainly plenty of those. Mas Meenlat, this Vader Fogra, Kirkcoing, Erin Taxback.com, ever. 086-353-7782. That's our text line. And ever, 086-353-7782. August Mabuikas, the Tony, August and Erdany, Sam Irie Chadwick's. As always, we're grateful to Tony Duggan and the team in Chadwick's, Sam Hire, for their support for this programme, indeed for the station overall. And of course, Mubuika Steve Shalukdeish, as always, we thank you for your support for this station in so many different ways, especially for supporting our Split the Pot Draw, which is still going on. Thank you for your support. We would not be here without you at all. August Anish. Mihal Adimida, Agasan Majin Shaw, Tashe Kindfi, Shana Dolivan, Scalara Gelga, O Kilkinik. A harder, Tommy Rash Liverish, Agasar Majin, Beme Kindly Fain, Scalara, Moor, Gelga, Rugahigun to Kilkinik, Shleve Rua, John O'Donovan, or Sean O'Donovan. Better Gwachshiv, Tor, or Telefish, Le Cooper Shachton, and us. John Creedon, a kind of Atlas Nahern, August Toshag Lanuant on Cosain, a Yin John O'Donovan, a Kid Kid Shachto no Octoblino Hen, August Toshe Talk to Kamech, Dugan in Olish Gwingna, Fay Kerave John O'Donovan, no on Donovanoch. Rugge. In October August the so in our his brochure schlieverua, our tivor no atty more a hoctaler in our tenish. August Philomore about a winter August we mullen egg a winter coma. So we should come a hastily in your left should bought. August just grab bella August Gaelic so while you Marna on Trowood via Gaelica for Lahans a food in the tier. A quidus nadine a Ravshansico Pashi Kurgrian skull. We bear the co-freshen, so we say go hangach, no bilingual. August Forshe Scullyacht, near Revna Scullin or Nashunta, our bonag, Forshe Scullyacht, says an eye, Chagas and Shin. Kuche go portlarigus, Kashe Kupel Blin, a skull prevoid of his stigi gahar fortlariga. Augustin, Kuche go balia tli, Augusta Kashe Kupel Blin, our skull 
i mallarci i freshen så vi ska lyfta öra här igen vi skick svinna väl dolgo man ut eller vänna haggart en tra ut och nyr skyssa regler sin och det är nås när vi gör dem då de sig kunnas en gälge skriv sin råd nakre vråkar tint en tra ut mänsen och tiren och det var en tanga vi skidde när ni är lärt och ni har skrivit en gälge kå Ach, sin rådde vi ge fein, agus estolung gröva er anachid de fjuchasus e fein. Far bjoga vi on, i refsia kuig tri kera orlach ar irge, dar er mara djerta, mara tlashim. Agus, mara estol djif, ni revein ahendus e gengelge mar hanga sa tir an traud. Ach, vi dina aira ha aun, Agus, chynig siad graffiwnt o sogeilge mar oes dan siawndaliacht sysyn archeologi gomer dan graffiwnachid dan siawndaliacht ni wefanaan e hysgynt gan an tanga agus gaitu na loganam nacha wehe arol sy gud mar wie na loganam nacha gleir a sgeilge agus an siad Fúr ógyanafan, fúr sé post le fár dálafánam hárdíman Víg sé ég fælsú lauer ástrúkhán ón gælge Agus víg maradjáran lúgt sján dálíachta kursimus na lauer sín Sá kásé, dú kursé hila ólis a kursi litríachta le hárdíman Agus án sín, víg sgeim ar sjúl ar fúrnatíra sésin dí árdínan sorvé Sorvé árdínaas Sheshin dol hainplanatira eg kona gach prosta na parkana hoos agus leir skalana yenav agus kwyta shin na na log anam nacha na anam nacha na na balsha farin id son a chayda anu agus id a shkrishis gomerka lagan ifagoil jivawan Ach, an botoon is toch eens mooi inzien dan al, an oeme wie aan, als lijken beerle achor aan orre. Nie is, kan niet beschrijven als, als geelge. Ach, maar hampelen, zoiets, literu beerle achor aan. Ach, is keilig aan vrije wie lo aan son. Tase gingen is, Gwr botoon mŵr e sin Agus ys mŵr an trwy e Mae'r ni higyn an cwydus mwrdus na dyna Cwydus bri leis na hanem na chyn Na log hanem na chyn sin yn eichr Ar un os Mae'r hampla Cwyrwg bri ella ar ffad ar Ta mi mwchwn i brosia Dŵn ffarta, James Ford Now, Dune Fart, Mar Homplan, Dune as Fort, August and Fokl Fart, now Uig, Uig, such as the Fort of the Graves. Ach, and the list of them can't fall, Ach, on original survey, the Hershey Dantanum, Jane's Fort, er. August, in the main one, taking a Donner, and the Jane's, and the Vikings, Leshenerker, Ach, Shinny and Sais Rod. Botuni yn o dynafan o'n agos y chwyrd agos na dyna fi gennys er. Agos o'r un o'r dy chasi tri blin y diag na mar sy'n agos fi o'ch sy'n taestl na tîr agos e sgrif litrach o'r ais so ta'n sorfi leisrys ta'n i gwr gach cwnt e o'n. Fi o'r dolf trid na portig agos na cynig e'n oed ar e cyslon, sian a cyslon o sian dŵn o e'n rhaid mar sy'n Vier dollet hæsle, og så vier kan ejmse gå gå fast og kominikke, og så vier kan være hæmmo, og så vier kan flukke kræken, og så sminikke forse slidan, og så nu måne, og så rådde marsjen, og så kørse sinnes stakker at ejmse, og så vier kan kominikke et gran for for en løsning, vier kan gå, og vier kan ne brålene i tæsk nu flukke, og så vier kan bia har måle børste og hørt. Ach, lan si o raig dy sin a faig i fad. Han sin, fwrs e 
We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM The Voice of the Black and Amber Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM Kyolagas Kora on Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM La Niklas O'Brenon yeah, Father Nashgiri, Kyolos Koran, Majin Shahar, Zanisha, and Lena Tajoana Reed, Storhorn at Lord Internationa, the Nagreek Karantul Goal. I was big she the kind fee, not sorrow, but a goal or food and down. Now it's a great honour for me uh, to welcome to the programme uh, Joanna Reed. Joanna is the Goal Director of International Programmes, and every year I have somebody from Goal on just to talk about their work because I think uh, they do amazing work. So, Joanna, we haven't spoken to you before on our radio station, so thank you for talking to us this morning. and. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you very much, Nikki, and uh, thank you for your welcome. Uh, it's a good uh, impetus to me to learn Irish one of these days. Uh, well, abso- absolutely. Well, this is a, a bilingual program, so we do uh, we do some talking in Irish on it, but uh, our guests, obviously, we talk to them in English for, for, for the most part. Joanna, obviously people will have already detected from your uh, beautiful Scottish accent that uh, you've come from uh, outside of the country. I must say, I like I like the Scottish accent, and uh, we talked about a feature on Scotland, as I said to you during the week, on the program yeah. not so long ago. 
ago. But uh, how did you manage to uh, navigate towards the goal organisation because you have a very significant uh, presence in goal now? Um, I do, and I'm, I feel very privileged to have joined uh, Goal. And uh, in fact, during my interview process, when I was asked about joining an Irish organisation, I did say, well, I'm Celtic, I'm from Scotland, so I think I'll get on all right. Um, but I had previously had a long career with uh, the UK government, um, with the Department for International Development. Uh, so I was uh, working for a donor organisation. Um, and uh, I got to a point in my career where I'd had a number of very senior jobs, uh, my last job was head of uh, DFID in Pakistan, a fascinating program, uh, and DFID's biggest program, and it was time for a change. Um, and for me, uh, my passion is in the country programs. It's, it, you go into development to make a difference, and I thought the obvious next step is to join an organisation that's actually doing the work on the ground. So moving from being a donor to an implementer. Um, and so I feel very privileged to have joined Goal. I've seen Goal in action um, in countries I had worked in, uh, in Sierra Leone and in Sudan. And so I had huge respect for Goal as an organization who just gets on and does a fantastic job. So for me, it was very exciting um, career development to join Goal. Yeah, and of course, you really answered the question I was going to ask you next. You had plenty of experience of Goal. You knew about the organization. You knew about the, the global infrastructure that they had so you were coming into an organization that was very active on the ground and fulfilling a lot of the work that you were already very knowledgeable about um, well absolutely and uh, the place where I came across goal most uh, significantly was in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis um, I'd worked in Sierra Leone once before and then when the Ebola crisis uh, struck I was asked by goal to go and head up DFID's uh, response and we were funding a number of uh, different organizations and and i always tell go staff go was my absolute dream uh, uh, partner organization anything that we asked them yep we can do that yes we'll see if we can do that um and you know frankly goal saved a lot of lives um, in West Africa, in Sierra Leone in those days. Um, and so that's uh, my a very direct interaction I had. But yes, I've seen many countries. I've seen development projects in action in a range of countries across uh, across the world, including in some very difficult circumstances in Yemen, in Somalia, Sierra Leone, uh, even Pakistan. Yeah, and in terms then of um, the goal staff and the operations globally, you've mentioned obviously some of the uh, locations and obviously you're in Central mm. and uh, America as well in areas like that and you're in a lot of conflict zones which we'll talk about in a moment. But in terms of the number of staff that you have globally, Joanne, what's your numbers at now? It's over 2,000 staff um, and uh, most of them are in the field. They're in our country programs. They're actually delivering uh, the, the, the services to, um, to people in these countries, working with them to improve their lives. And that's what we call the front line. Those are the front line staff. Uh, but obviously there are a number of people that work in headquarters um, in Dunleary, um, also remotely in, in various hubs around the world. Um, and um, th that includes me. Um, and our work is also really important to, to keep the wheels going, to make sure um, that we're doing everything from um, getting money in for them to, to, to do the work um, to, you know, whether it's HR, making they've got the, sure they've got the supplies, the procurement, um, all kinds of support services. Uh, that allow them to get on with their work. And somebody who does a lot of travelling, like, like yourself, uh, Joanna, what sort of a lifestyle is that, that you're moving from country to country, you're moving from time zone to time zone? Talk to me about the type of, the way that impacts you personally, because you're one of numerous goal people who have this uh, continued travel uh, in your lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it is, although, you know, with uh, COVID, I'm feeling very, it's very strange. I haven't been on a plane for, I think, well, of course, yeah. in, my entire, <laughs> in, my, in my entire professional career. Uh, and I'm desperate to get out and see some of the programs. Um, so, yes, uh, traveling is, is very tiring. You're on and off um, planes. You're conscious of your carbon footprint. Um, but actually, you need to, to go and see the programs. Um, and that's very important from the point of view of being having that oversight, making sure that everybody is, is doing what we're asking to do, doing what either taxpayers are paying for or donors, uh, individual donors are paying for. So there's that oversight. Um, it's also motivating. It's motivating for the staff in country to know that um, senior people know what they're doing, appreciate what they're doing and can sometimes, can sometimes help. Um, but also it's really motivating for myself um, to be able to get out and actually see 
what you see transformation, people's lives being changed. That's, as I say, you go into development to make a difference. And when you can see that differences are being made to, to individuals, to communities, um, that gives you uh, the kind of buzz you, you, you can't imagine. Well, um, and, and it's not in a patronising way. That's just because this, they, it's their right to have that kind of life and that, that, that we can help bring that about. And it's at this amazing. particular time, Joanna, obviously we're still in the throes of the pandemic and in many of the regions that uh, goal people operate, it's probably more challenging for there because they don't get access to vaccines and the medical services may not be as good as in other areas. So how, how are goal operating in, at, at this particular time in the middle of a global pandemic? Um, well, you're right, it's still the middle of the pandemic. It's a, it's a year since it started and we had no idea, did we, that it was going to be still going on. Um, and um, Goal, um, I, I'm really proud of the way that Goal responded. Again, partly based on their experience with um, Ebola and some of the techniques that they developed um, at that time to help communities um, to keep themselves safe and of course staff to keep themselves safe that those are priorities we need to make sure that our staff uh, are safe um, and that they were able to share lessons with communities to whether it's social distancing hand washing keeping themselves um, you know uh, free of the, the virus and um, we also responded with actual programs and some donors um, at that time had rapid response funds, had money to actually implement programs uh, to deal with um, the, the, the pandemic. It's gone on a long time um, and um, I'm very conscious that staff, um, I think we're all very tired of it. Our resilience is low, whatever our personal circumstances and that's doubly so for our staff in the field who are dealing with this. And of course, um, and we, we did say, uh, obviously, that you operate, goal operates in some serious conflict zones. And mm. perhaps there's been, uh, there's many areas, I suppose, I could select, but clearly Syria is an area that brings, springs to mind. I even saw a piece on television recently, I think it was on Sky, did a feature where they visited a family. They were living in a little small room, probably not as big as the studio I'm in here at the moment. That was their, that was their sole uh, living quarters, no water, no light, no nothing. It really is difficult for people in that area to have had to con- Tend with the ravages of war and the whole way that the, their whole human their whole human life mm-hmm. has been destructed. It's just mm-hmm. in, s- desperate. It, it is desperate, and um, you, you'll have seen uh, and your listeners will have seen a lot on Syria recently because it's the tenth anniversary of the conflict, which is also unbelievable. You know, time has that much time has passed, and something we thought would be over pretty quickly, um, another um, another conflict. But um, there are millions and millions of people displaced um, within Syria itself and over the borders into countries like Turkey, uh, into Jordan, uh, into Lebanon. And, and it's just tragic. This is a country that, um, that actually was quite a well-off country and many of these people are people like you and me. They are educated people. Yeah, they had people, life. They yeah. had their professional people. Yeah, and they had no, you know, idea this was going to happen. Um, and and they are still displaced. And uh, ten years on, and it's just. And so yes, our staff trying to reach them with just basic basic supplies. When you're displaced, you can't take stuff with you. You can't access your bank account. You can't. You know, you, you have nothing left. And you're absolutely dependent on uh, handouts. It's, it's humiliating for many of these people. And so what they want is to find themselves a place where they can then move on and start, you know, earning a living. But when they're in a camp, uh, just impossible. And, of course, the, the risks of COVID there, just incredible to try and help people to stay safe, distance, hand wash. Etc. Yeah, and when Goal operates in those territories, talk to me about engagement with the local authorities, governments, if you could call them that, or indeed with those involved in the conflicts. How, how do you manage to kind of become the, the, the good cop in all of this, if I could use that term? Because clearly you're in mm-hmm. there to help the people. You have no other motive and all that. But yeah. do the authorities and do those involved in conflicts see it as that way? Uh, it's it's a very fine line that all organisations have to have to walk, um, and we uh, are in touch with many, including the UN. And I might come back to that because of Ireland's role um, in the United Nations. But um, yes, Goal has to negotiate uh, to provide the the basic life saving services, and it has to accept whatever institution is in charge and it has to negotiate with indeed local authorities and um, we're all very used to institutions that work under clear rules you know how they work you do this this happens and those rules don't necessarily apply um, and the rules can change 
um, and individuals can interpret, let's say, the rules in different ways. So it is extremely difficult. Uh, just getting flour to bakeries in, in Syria can be a very difficult process of who's going to inspect the flour, who's going to decide that it's of good quality. If we know we buy it from good quality and we know it's been quality assured, who else wants to check on the quality of, of that flour, for example? These are things that we have to work through um, on a daily basis just to get people the, the yes, basic course. supplies they need. You did refer to the fact that Ireland are now on the, uh, the, the United Nations uh, Security Council, I think it is, and for a two-year term, a very influential yes. role we saw recently, in fact, where... Um, uh, Simon Coveney was sent off to Iran to talk to the mm-hmm. leaders there which was a significant role for Ireland so I imagine organisations like Goal are hoping that Ireland's influence on the UN will be beneficial to your work uh, in, in during their, their two year term uh, We are absolutely hoping that it's, um, it's a huge responsibility for Ireland and a privilege for Ireland um, and we want to, um, to help by, and what we can do is we can bear witness to what happens on the ground um, and the Oryctus in, in Ireland recently held a session on Syria uh, and Go um, spoke at that meeting uh, and uh, one of our staff members had been personally affected by the conflict and gave very moving testimony as to the reality of the life on the uh, on ground for these displaced people. The big challenge um, uh, for Ireland is it holds the pen with Norway on the on the Syria process, which means that it's responsible for all the negotiations and all the discussions and boy that's difficult uh, we what, the biggest thing we need is renewal of the cross-border um, arrangement to get aid into Syria yeah, that's well, a huge job. Sure, I know there's been numerous other areas around the world that we uh, that we could talk about, but I, I get regular updates from Eamon Sharkey in Goal in relation mm-hmm. to what's happening in the latest updates, and I'm, I'm, I see, I describe one of Eamon's emails he had in it about Goal working with inspirational communities, so despite all the conflict, I think the communities in which Goal works, though, your own people are inspired by the resilience of the people that you work with yeah. on the ground. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the thing. That, I mean, aid is no longer a sort of patronising, you know, international organisations come in and hand out uh, to people and go away again. We know that people, communities have their own solutions. Um, and sometimes they need help to do that because uh, they're, 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 they're starting with very little. But many of the communities we work with are extremely resilient. They've, they've survived through uh, natural hazards, through drought, through floods. They're still there. They find ways to be entrepreneurs. And if we can facilitate that, that's what we do more uh, nowadays. And even digital technology um, allows you to sort of leapfrog many years of development by facilitating things like you know, mobile banking. Very and that good, yeah, like very a huge true. stretch in, in some of the most remote areas. But actually, you see mobile phones in the most remote areas. And if we can help um, bring technology um, whether it's solar power to get um, the, the cold chain going for vaccines um, or whether it's, it's digital technology to move money around, um, we, can, we can help with that. Yeah, and well, I think it's good, it's good to see some of the large global entrepreneurs as well, you know, focusing in, in some of their philanthropic work on areas like where Goal is operating as well. But yeah, fundraising yeah. is still an issue. And I, I know that uh, during the week when I was setting up this interview, and I, and I thank Miriam Donoghue for her help in, in arranging it, she talked to me about the whole Goal Wellness Week fundraiser in May and other sources of funding. So, Joanna, you still need money. And while there's plenty of people in Ireland looking for funding to support one another, we still need to help our overseas territories like the areas where Goal are involved in. Uh, we do, we do. Um, and um, I do appreciate that, that people within this pandemic are thinking of, of themselves, of their families, of what we see happening to communities around us. But actually this is not the time to, to, to stop thinking about the world as a whole. We've seen that um, COVID crosses boundaries. It doesn't care about uh, international borders. It, it goes everywhere. And this is precisely why we need to make sure that we see development as a global issue, not just at home, but we see it um, across the whole world. Climate change affects the whole world. And if we don't do something about it um, in other parts of the world, then it's, it's going to have an impact on us. So now more than ever, we do need to think, uh, think globally. We do get lots of money from uh, the institutional donors, from the US, the EU, the UK, and of course, Irish Aid. Um, our home donor um, but um, much of that money is very closely tied to specific projects 
What really helps us is when we have, when, when people give from the heart, when they really give of their own generous, uh, their own income, then that really helps us to be very flexible and to be ready to respond um, for the, the extras where we just see the need but we can't go to, to a donor and say, can we do something here? It allows us just to go that extra mile um, for people. So absolutely, listeners can donate at any time. Go to our website, goglobal.org. Um, people can also support one of the events. I, I, I did the Goal Mile myself this year, but I understand it's an annual institution. Very um, true, very like, true, yes, right. Things yeah. like, uh, I love, I love the, the sports connection with, with Goal um, and uh, Jersey Day in the autumn. Um, or people can uh, volunteer to, to support these events. So the well-being, the wellness week, um, apart, it's, it's something which is replacing Duvet Day. And what we've got is um, from April the 26th to the 30th, um, we've actually got a whole lot of experts from the world of sport, nutrition, health and science to help us stay healthy and boost morale. And if it can raise some money on the, on the way, then it, it's uh, good vibes for, for many people in the rest of the world as, as well. So we've got sessions by immunologist uh, Professor Luke O'Neill, chef Rory O'Connell, Olympian runner uh, Kira McGeehan, uh, personal trainer Neve Cullen, and apologies if I pronounce any of these names wrongly, um, Deirdre McSwiney, um, sleep expert. That's the one I'm sli- sli- uh, selling up for because... <laughs> yeah, we could all sign up for that one. Well, uh, the, the safety of staff, you've, we've talked about conflict zones. Safety of staff in conflict zones is what keeps me awake at night. So um, that and yoga teacher Sarah Jordan Surfer, Dr. Eastie Britton, and motivational wellness speaker Pat Divilly. And uh, what, that's, that's an amazing lineup who are giving of their time and energy to go, for which we're extremely grateful. Yeah, well, look at Joanne, before I let you go, I know that you're seeing very eager now to get on an airplane and head into uh, to the various parts of the world where your staff is. What is your hope when you might be able to hit that airplane, Joanne? Have you any expectation? And I know this is probably trying to ask you to find a needle in a haystack to some extent. <laughs> it, it is, um, and it's interesting, isn't it? The world, uh, every month, you think it's easier to travel than it's less easy to travel. Um, I, you, you've got to be conscious of yourself as well as the risk to other people if you if you go traveling around the world and goal itself is very careful to uh, to go with all the regulations for whatever country including in ireland um, and not put our staff at risk um, or other people at risk so i hope uh, definitely hope later on this this year i'll be getting out to to see the, the people that work on the ground the amazing staff on the front line okay well look at that's uh, joanna reed joanna i want to thank you for talking to us and thank miriam dunno for arranging uh, the interview uh, for anybody who wants to contribute you log on to uh, goldglobal.com Org. up in the top right hand corner there's a donate button you can tap in there even if you only give um, five euro it's amazing mm-hmm. how that would help some of the people in those conflict blo- zones that Joanna spoke about Joanna we'll continue to support that uh, wellness week here on Community Radio Kenny City thank you for your time Brilliant. and good wishes and of course you and your staff stay safe wherever you might be working because uh, you're in uh, difficult places but that is the nature of what you uh, sign up for when you join Goal Thank you very much, Nikki, yep. and thanks to your listeners. You're very welcome. Thanks, Joanne. Yeah, the Beshin, uh, Joanna Reid, Goal, Fonagiling, We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. The Voice of the Black and Amber, Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Phil Coulter and PC Call Das there take me home. Well, Anisha and Lena Thorn, Crailhor TV, Virgin Media News, Crailhor Politique to Gavin Riley. And Gavin, I suppose there's a lot of people who would love to, uh, if they could be taken home with this uh, lockdown going on at the moment. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, no worries about calling us TV3 because even we're three years now into the rebrand and even sometimes we still stumble over the new nomenclature yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah it, it's beginning to, to grate on everyone a little bit and the big problem that the government is now facing is 
this whole question of how do you, you juggle the responsibility to public health restrictions? How do you try to make sure that people do what is being asked of them and how you make you know, appropriate asks to try and keep the numbers down while we make progress in vaccination, while at the same time not losing the dressing room? Because I think there is a serious fear that we're now getting to the point where the government, if it hasn't already lost the dressing room, may be on the verge of doing so. Uh, there's countless studies that suggest that there is still large adherence to the public health guidelines, that even though everyone is frustrated that by and large an awful lot of people are still sticking to them. The problem is that you only need a fairly sizable minority not to stick to them to basically undermine the efforts of everyone else. And that's the danger that I think the government is facing up to now, that there is a danger that because this now seems so ongoing, so endless, that we're, you know, we're going to be looking into lockdown at least until Easter Monday, but potentially then with very little relaxation. So you could be looking at basically not having household visits or, or any major travel really until May or potentially, God forbid, even June, uh, that people are just acting as if the lockdown never applied anyway. And of course, that completely undermines the whole thing. So how, what do you do? If, for example, say 10 or 15% of people are acting as if there isn't a lockdown, and how do you keep the other 85% on side, knowing that, that their efforts are being undermined by the minority? And, of course, the other day, Ronan Glynn, maybe he didn't mean it to come out the way he did, but he kind of almost wrote off everything until June, and that really had people frustrated. I just feel that Neffert and the government are not quite on tune here together. I, I, it, it, the message is still wobbly coming from, from government because of maybe Neffert maybe there's, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes and I'm sure there's some very stiff discussions going on which one would expect to be a normal procedure but Yeah, well I think, I mean first and foremost, and I, I know I'm guilty of this myself because I spent all day yesterday reporting on it for, for Virgin Media News, but um, there's a danger that sometimes we try to fill the void and we, we speculate on, on what is likely to come based on the situation as it currently stands, and, and in all honesty you know, there are some pieces on the front pages of the newspapers yesterday, there's more on the front pages today, and they're all speculating based on what would happen if the decisions were being made now because there's a few indicators or a few bellwethers that the government has listed that they'll look at when it comes to making the decisions and they're looking at vaccinations and variants and case numbers and hospital numbers and the OR number and a few other things but trying basically to project what the government is going to do 10 days before they do it is a little bit of a folly because things can change so much in the meantime that really it's all... It's informed speculation, but, but it, is, it is just that. It's speculation. And even ministers, when they talk about what they're doing, it is still speculation. On Ronan Glynn, I thought there were, there were a couple of aspects to what Ronan Glynn said on Thursday night. Firstly, um, it, it, was, it was a fairly clumsy comment, the idea of asking people to just do that little bit more when, like I said, for the vast majority of people, and Neffet's own research confirms this, the vast majority of people are still doing absolutely everything which is asked of them. So how can you do a little bit more than the everything that you're already doing? I mean, the country is in full lockdown and if the vast majority of people are observing all the criteria of lockdown there is nothing more they can do there's nothing more they can give on the other side however i think that there there was a little bit of um ronan glynn being unfairly kind of made the face of the, this whole story because when he was asked about what might last until june he was specifically only talking about a couple of things. He was specifically asked about uh, issues like uh, work from home or issues like, you know, more liberal international travel. And it was those that he said would probably be staying as they currently are until June. He wasn't saying that, you know, the idea of a five-kilometre exercise limit and non-essential retail being completely shut and all of that and no household visits or hospitality. He wasn't saying that would be June. He was only saying the specific things that he was asked. But, of course, people saw a part of a clip, people saw the answer without seeing the question and then it got turned into a headline and then suddenly the, the story was boiled down into something more essential or more basic than he'd actually said and there was a little bit more nuance to it. But, I mean, you're right that it, it does kind of illustrate a little bit of a void and that the government never, whether they're on the same page or not I don't know but that they are they're all flying blind and they're trying to answer questions with a straight bat but the realistic thing is that un until they come around to making the decisions in 9 or 10 days time no one really knows what way it's going to go because we just don't know what the case numbers are going to look like or what hospitals are going to look like or what variants are going to look like yeah, well, that's, that's you very, know you that's, can't make the call that's very true now obviously the Gardaí put in a, a good shift on, on Patrick's Day they kept the protests or whatever you want to call them down to the minimum. But I, I would be concerned that if there's not some movement, whatever that might be after April the 5th, that the protests may just get a little bit stronger and it could become more challenging for uh, the authorities and the Garda Shikan in particular. 
Yeah, which is precisely the problem that we go back to that we started out on a few minutes ago because if the government is concerned about losing the dressing room then you sort of need to give people something that, you know, you need to kind of reward human instinct or human behaviour that you need to at least sort of give them some sort of reward for the sacrifices that everyone's been going through for the last three months. But on Patrick's Day and in the, the protest a few weeks earlier aside from the, the violent actions of some, there was a demonstration about what happens if you're not able to keep everyone on side. And, and that is a major issue because, you know, when we were speculating yesterday and again I hold my hands up and say that we're only speculating based on what the current situation is not necessarily how it'll be in a week's time but if you looked at the figures yesterday if you looked at uh, the, the four metrics that the government outlined well you know variants are, are broadly under control with the exception of the British one which is now the dominant one but any other variants like the South African or Brazilian or, or Portuguese or some of the, the American ones are still where they have been identified as Ireland they're under control those people are quarantining and there's no reason to think that there are any other cases in Ireland but all the other metrics are all beginning to look a little bit ropey. You know, when we entered lockdown first, the government thought that we would be much further along the road of vaccination than we are currently right now. I mean, there was an idea when lockdown was extended until April the 5th, the government thought that they would have 1.4 million vaccinations done in the first quarter of this year. Now they'll be lucky if they reach 1 million. So the pro- like they, they planned lockdown on the basis that they thought they'd be coming out of it in a much better shape. Um, case numbers in hospital have almost stopped falling. They're still falling in, in regular beds, but the ICU numbers have stopped falling. They're still there at about uh, somewhere in the 80s, which is one in three of every full-time ICU bed in the country is still occupied with COVID. Uh, and the case numbers, they looked okay as of yesterday, but for a lot of the last week they've been higher than the previous week the seven day average is is on the upswing again so all of those metrics are still very very difficult and this really gets to the crux of the issue if if you observe it purely by the metrics it's very difficult to speculate to see what sort of relaxation you could actually tolerate but of course the danger is if you don't do it then not only does the government sort of lose its political control of the country and that it begin to get rejected by by the common man on the street but also you begin to get people just disregarding the obligations anyway yeah. and that's where the whole thing comes apart during the course of the last year as the pandemic grew in europe unfortunately after a period of time weeks or a month or so ireland uh, became afflicted now clearly in europe at the moment paris is going into lockdown this weekend a number of other areas of Paris, uh, Poland are in huge trouble. Mm. Also, Germany. Germany, Germany too. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, this is a concern, really. Now, maybe we have uh, we have sorted our airports out a little bit better than we did in the past, and maybe we have put processes in place to to manage the inflow of people to the country. What do you think? Uh, I, I think. First of all, I think there will probably be in the next couple of days you'll see the Irish government holding out its its cap and saying that, you know, things are going broadly better than Ireland and that this is a sign that things are working because look at the situation Ireland is in versus the situation that the other countries are in. Of course, the reverse was true just after Christmas. Ireland is still living, if I feel pardoned the, the choice of analogy, Ireland is still living with its Christmas hangover. This was the behaviour at Christmas and three months later we still haven't gotten over the ill effects of it. Those other countries never had that. But of course... These things always come in pairs as well. People will say that, you know, uh, well, of course Ireland has one of the lowest cases because Ireland has one of the harshest lockdowns. Well, Ireland has one of the harshest lockdowns because after Christmas we had the worst cases that have been recorded anywhere in Europe in the history of this pandemic. So that's the that's the sort of the flip side. It's the devil's bargain. Uh, I think it, it, it will, to some degree, though, it, it may give the government some cover for a little bit of caution because there, it will look a little bit foolhardy perhaps if they begin to come out of things a little bit more aggressively than they should and people will look around the rest of Europe and go well hang on lads you know this is getting bad on a worldwide scale but I suppose what is worth bearing in mind for listeners is that when they hear about what's going on in Paris or what's going on in different areas of Germany or different areas of Italy that is their third wave you know, we had our third wave, we're still trying to, to ride out the third wave, but we had our third wave nearly three months ago. They never had one. They managed to, they were able to take care of the second wave to a certain degree. They were able to have something of a Christmas, not the same Christmas as we had, but then they had a slightly better January than we had. So these things all come in, in swings and roundabouts, and I think people should be careful to bear that in mind. Yeah, well, it's an important day today because the AstraZeneca vaccine starts. They're hoping to have 4,000 administered in the, uh, up in um, Dublin in, uh, where is it, in the Helix this weekend. Yes in fact, which is good, and it'll probably start around locally as well. Uh, Europe, I mean, I, you know I'm a listener to LBC Radio in London, mm-hmm. and you can you, that goes two extremes, to be fair. There's no middle of the road with LBC, uh, and uh, and clearly those on the right, uh, what they're not saying about Europe, my God, it's, it's uh, you know, they're saying Europe has made a total bags of this, have they? Um, 
the, well, certainly the, the European Commission on the procurement side has certainly seemed to drop the ball because although it is absolutely true that if the EU countries were all negotiating independently that you'd get into a bidding war and that you'd have some bigger, richer countries with a whole load of vaccines that they couldn't even possibly administer and smaller countries, maybe the likes of ourselves, ending up empty-handed and, and nobody wants that. But, but what people should remember too is that the EU's common purchasing or common procurement grew out of an initiative that was taken by four of the member states. So it was going back to last summer, France, Germany, Italy and the Netherlands got together and they decided, lads, let's not bid against each other, let's go to the big drug companies like Pfizer or, or Moderna or whoever else and let's put together a consortium that we're all buying for, for each other. And they did that and they got the nuts and bolts of a deal done with the likes of, uh, of Pfizer and the likes of AstraZeneca. They then handed that over to the European Commission because they said it was only right that things be centrally managed in Brussels if they were going to be you know, running things for the whole continent. And it was Brussels who turned a contract which was supposed to be a commitment like the UK has of you will deliver X doses on X date and instead put in a clause around how they would use all their best and reasonable efforts, which, of course, is, is the get-out clause that is now being exploited, because if AstraZeneca weren't able to meet all their commitments, they have stipulations in black and white to the likes of uh, the, the United States or to the likes of the UK, and they don't have stipulations in black and white to Europe because they're only aspirational targets, and, and that's the danger. Um, there is one other thing, though, about the, uh, the UK thing, and is that I'm sort of tickled by your, your mention of LDC because I know you're a, a fond listener to it. The one thing that's worth bearing in mind about the British when it comes to the vaccination schedule is that, first of all, they're, predom they're predominantly reliant on Pfizer. I know that they've issued something like 11 million uh, AstraZeneca vaccines, but Pfizer is really the bulk of, of what they've been issuing. And the, when the Pfizer vaccine was put in through its regulatory tests before it got clinical approval from the, all the various regulators, the idea was that you were always supposed to get your second dose within three to four weeks of the first one. What Britain has done is go unilaterally and decide to stretch that out for months at a time. So you get your first jab, but you could be waiting three months for the second one. Now that works to a point uh, because what they want to do is they want to give as many people partial immunity if, if they can do that and, and there's a logic to it and some of what they're seeing you know, makes up for that. But actually if you look at the, the figures and you see how many British people have actually received their second dose, the Irish percentage is just about the same if not actually marginally higher. So what, what Britain are doing are sort of massaging their numbers somewhat yeah, and the danger with yeah. the, the likes of some outlets like LBC and some of the, the more Tory friendly press is that they're focusing on the headline number of 46% of people having gotten the vaccine. They're not really focusing as much anymore on the other metrics, like how many people are still getting the virus or how many people are going into their hospitals. If you take the fact that nearly half of everyone in Britain has got one jab of the vaccine, yesterday alone there were 40 people admitted to ICU in London alone. Now, I know London's a big city. It's probably got a population twice the size of Ireland. But if half the people in London, on average, have received a vaccine and there's still 40 people being admitted to intensive care alone in London. It only goes to illustrate how big the problem still is nationally, but of course the, the local press are much happier to focus on the success story. Well, I, will, I, will, uh, I will let you talk to your friend Nick Ferrari at some stage <laughs> on that one. Um, now, I, I know when I was growing up, Gav, um, we all remembered about the Sputnik from uh, Russia going to the moon or the sky or wherever it might be. Mm. Now the Sputnik uh, vaccine, uh, they're offering it to Ireland. Uh, uh, are we going to take it up? Uh, well, it, are they offering to, are they offering it to Ireland or are they saying that it would be available if they wanted it? Because yeah, certainly that's the message coming from the Russian ambassador. He was contacted by the chairman of Galway County Council about this idea of whether Sputnik would be available. And he said, well, if you want to put in an order, the issue is there. Um, I know that this has been teased out by some people within central government, but they have a little bit of concern around not, not you know, the, the vaccine itself or not even about the politics of buying something from a, a country that's somewhat in the cold like Russia. They're actually not sure about whether Russia's commitments can actually be met because um, one of the, the, the things with Russia is that although they've become very innovative now and clearly this is a big success story for them, um, that when it comes to trying to, to manufacture it and trying to get it into as many arms as possible, they're running into a bit of a brick wall because they haven't really expanded some of their manufacturing and their sort of factory sector beyond what it was in the Soviet days. So although their scientists are now very creative and very innovative, they just don't have the factories to turn all of this out. So Russia itself 
is still trying to find factories outside of Russia that it can use to manufacture Sputnik for its own people. And actually, if you look at the progress that they're making, the EU, on average, has vaccinated around twice as many people as a percentage of its population than Russia has. So although Russia is promising, yes, there's this, you know, we've got this vaccine, if you want to order from us, we can sort it out. One, there are concerns around whether it actually has the capacity to fulfil an order. Where are they going to find a factory that can offer you the, the millions of doses that you might order? But secondly are they actually really in the market for selling it as aggressively as they seem to be when actually they are falling behind domestically? Like if, if this was a propaganda exercise by Moscow, would they not be better off using as much capacity as they possibly can find to produce it and vaccinate their own people and then you could have pictures sure. going around the world of people packing into bars in Moscow and St. Petersburg while the rest of us are still meeting up one friend in a park for coffee. You know, okay. So it's kind of debatable just to, to how much actual authority there is in those offers. You know? Okay, in one minute is Leo Varadkar in trouble with uh, leaking that report? What got um, a on he, that one he's now? not in trouble for the time being, but I think when we find out whether the DPP is going to initiate a prosecution, that's really going to be the ball game. Because if the DPP decides that there has it's been fully investigated, but that there isn't really a charge to bring or that a charge wouldn't stick, then it's fair to say that he's probably out the gap. He will obviously be very, very tarnished in his ability to impose authority and to, to smack down on other infractions within Fine Gael will be severely compromised, but he'll still be okay. If it's a situation where he is now going to be prosecuted and if he could face you know, some sort of court action over alleged breaches of the corruption laws committed while he was in the country's highest office, and knowing that that's an office that he is destined to return to, I yeah. think he would be in serious danger. And it's interesting today that... In multiple newspapers, there's already people speculating on what might happen if that's the case, because I think there is clearly a body of, of opinion now within Fine Gael that if the DPP decides that there's nothing to see here, politically, it's already been taken care of. It was damaging, but it's done. Okay. If there is a criminal act still to come, then it's a different uh, different situation entirely. Okay, we'll get you back to talk about that, but I just want to finish on a little funny, a funnier incident. Well, it might be so funny. I see where the Manchester City footballer, Rihad Mares, had 200,000 stolen from his credit card. Uh, he only discovered it a month after it started to happen. Happen. Uh, what does that say about uh, the, the professional footballers and their management of their finances? Uh, well, I'm sure if he was a Man United player, he'd probably have a load of different people on his staff to be able to keep closer account of his, his uh, finances. I remember, actually, I think it's, it's a, a, a story that I remember you being fond of before about the, the former England international Jermaine Pennant who went to play for Real Sociedad in the Liga for a while and allegedly forgot that he had parked a car of his own, like one of his own luxury cars in a Spanish railway station or at an airport and completely forgotten about it, even though the car itself not only was a very extensive luxury personalised car, but had personalised number plates spelling out the word Germain on it. and even he had forgotten about that so maybe this, they're, they're living in the world the rest of us can only aspire to Absolutely Okay Gavin that's alright Good to talk to you this morning Take care Take care Okay Gavin Riley Crailahore Politique or Virgin Media News Well Shin Derrida and Clare the new Mubikas of Simon Chadwick's August Steve shall look this at August the Dean of Erin but Bikas and the Dean of Erin Clare imagine Fanagilig Marbeg Heidi Good I talk to Spiritual Life Teresh Nanukta August Maradult and Tussock and Clare Beg Akrail and Clare Show Air Radio Fubble Carca Kenny Garilona Renee Clog so good evening, Saharan Chokuing, or my fanagas Kyolagas Koro, Slan Agus Bannock. We are Community Radio, Kakeni City, eighty-eight point seven FM.